Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin a study of what's commonly known the Lord's Prayer. It's uh, actually the Disciples' Prayer, you might say. Um, and it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. And really the, the main part of the prayer is through uh, uh, verse 13. And then verses 14 and 15 are kind of an addendum to, to what was prayed. And uh, we'll get into that in the coming weeks. But uh, we're going to be here for a little while because there's so much in this, um, this prayer. It's just amazing. Uh, once you start to study it and uh, you start to look at the different facets of it, uh, it, it really uh, comes to life. And it's, it's not just something that, you know, from my childhood I used to say in the Catholic Church growing up, I could say it in my sleep. And um, it didn't mean a whole lot to me. But uh, really this is a model that Christ gave us on how we should pray. And um, just as when we went through the, the other part of the, the Beatitudes there, and it kind of looks at the different areas of our life, our Christian life, this really looks at our relationship with God, and it, and it will strengthen it as we uh, go through this, this uh, next couple of these, these verses in the next uh, several weeks. Um, but I think in the Christian life, there's probably nothing more important than you think about it, than, than you think about the subject of prayer. Um, and yet, I don't know about you, but a lot of times prayer is hard. It's difficult. It's not easy to pray. And yet we're, we're told to do it all the time. We're told to pray without ceasing. And uh, as believers, we're called to learn how to pray so that we can express the, the fullness of our relationship with God. That's really what the gift of prayer is. And uh, Paul said, pray without ceasing. And uh, it means just that, pray and pray and pray and never stop praying. Um, and I think that it's, it's probably such an important part of our Christian life. That's why Christ, in this section here, we, we were talking here that he talks about three religious duties of the Jews of the day, the first one was giving, and that's covered in verses 1 through 4. And then prayer, and that's covered in verses 5 through 14. And then basically fasting is uh, 16 to 18. But you look at those verses, and where's the, 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 the majority of the time that the Lord spends is on the importance of prayer. And so rather than just dive right into this prayer, I, we want to give a little bit of an overview, a little bit of a background on the importance of prayer. Why is it important that we pray? Obviously, giving is important, and we looked at why, because that's how God blesses us, and we're able to, to give back. Fasting is important. Uh, prayer is important. But it's interesting, because if you take giving and you don't pray about what you're giving, the Bible says that you should pray as God is directed in your heart. And if you also look at fasting and you just go out and fast without prayer, really those two elements of religious life are meaningless without prayer. And so prayer is really the center point of the Christian walk. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. And a lot of times we forget that. We forget that prayer should be a central portion of our Christian life. Well, there's a look at unbiblical prayer. Um, you know, there's... There's a lot of times when we go to pray and we don't really know how we should pray. 
the Jews of, of Jesus' day were very prayerful, but they were doing it all wrong. Just like they were giving all wrong and they were fasting all wrong. They were doing it for their own self-grandizement, their own self-glory. And here, when he comes to prayer, he really kind of hammers home the point of what the purpose of prayer is. Matter of fact, in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, the Apostle Paul said, we know not what to pray as we ought. He's saying we don't even know how to pray. He said two things there. We don't know what to pray for, and we don't know how we ought to pray. And so we're kind of in a quandary because we're called to prayer, and yet most of us, I believe, don't know the right way to pray. It's not a formula, but there's a biblical way to pray, and there's an unbiblical way to pray. That's why the Bible says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, and uh, God desires us to pray. And so we have this problem, the same problem that they had in Jesus' day. They didn't know how to pray in the right way, in the religiously correct way, in the biblical way. Now, they were very familiar with prayer in in the time of of Christ. It was kind of the the central point of their uh, life, just like it should be of our lives. Um, There's basically two tests someone pointed out regarding someone's spirituality. One is the study of God's Word, and secondly, it's prayer. You can focus in on somebody's life in those two areas, the idea that they're studying God's Word and the idea that they're praying, and you can tell where someone is spiritually very quickly. And I think it's important that the study of God's Word comes before prayer. You can't just pray in a vacuum. You can't just open the Bible up and go, okay, let's see, what do you got for me? And so, you know, we, we can't pray in a vacuum, and, and we want to make our prayers with a foundation of God's Word. And that's what Jesus does here in the, in the disciples' prayer. Basically, 66 words, depending on what translation you have. I mean, this prayer is an incredible prayer. It's a model prayer. It's a prayer that he says, pray, therefore, in this way. And we're going to be looking at this in the weeks to come. But I think sometimes we need to remember that we shouldn't just jump into prayer. I think that it's important that we have the Word of God as a foundation for what we're praying. We mentioned this a little bit last week. Um, There's a lot of people that pray for... They they go to prayer and they ask Christ for strength. And the Bible says that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Right? We heard people stand up and say, Lord, you know... Pray that you'll be with us when we go on this trip. The, the Bible says that, you know, hey, I'm with you always. There are people who just say, man, Lord, give me the love to love this person. It's a hard person to love. And, I just, and the Bible says that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in your heart. See, you don't need more of that. You just need to use what God has already given us. But if we don't go to God's Word, we don't know what God has already given us. So, therefore, we're praying almost empty prayers. God's up there saying, you already got it. You already got it. You already got it. Just use it. Or sometimes, and we've all prayed this at some point in our Christian life, so I'm making fun of myself as well as others. Not making fun of them, but bringing attention to this. Sometimes in prayer meetings, you, you hear, you know, Lord, your word says, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. And you stop and you say, okay, does that mean if I'm at home by myself praying in my bed, he's not there? No, it has nothing to do with that. But we use that. 
And it, it comes out of an ignorance of God's word is why we, we use that. We've used that on occasion. It's not talking about a prayer meeting there. And so we need to stop and we need to lay the foundation down of God's word and say, hey, you know what? Don't go to God like you're going to inform him about something when you're in your prayer. The Bible says that he already knows what you're going to say. He already knows what you need before you even ask him. And yet so much of our prayers, I think, are information-based prayers. Like we're letting God in on something he doesn't know about. God, you know, I just had a bad day at work today. You know, first of all, started off the water cooler. Then, you know, I went to my office and then I got this phone call. And God's up there going, okay, you don't think I know this? I already know this. And sometimes I think when we pray, I mean, is God graceful and God understanding? Sure, just as we are when we're in a prayer meeting and we hear people pray when two or three are gathered in my name. I don't say, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't, you know, I don't do that. You practice grace and love. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray with some kind of intelligence, that we shouldn't pray with some kind of foundation upon God's Word. And so when we study God's Word, we discover God's truth, and that helps us when we go to prayer. So those two ultimate tests of spirituality are the study of God's Word, and alongside of that, you would put prayer. And the Lord basically here, He gives us instruction on how to pray. Um, Jesus knew more than anybody how to pray. Um, the disciples in Luke chapter 11, verse 1 says, Lord, teach us to pray. And if you look at that text, and when he asked, answered that question, what does he do? He basically recites the same prayer that we're looking at this morning. A little different, because it's a different occasion, but it's basically the same model. And so I think that what Jesus wants to get across here in this model prayer is that, you know what, I don't want you to be praying like the Pharisees do. And that's what he says in verses 5 through 8. He said, don't pray like them. Don't use vain repetition of words like the pagans do. Don't pray just so you can be seen by other men. That's not what it's about. Don't pray that you think you're informing God because he knows what you're going to ask before you even ask. Don't pray that way. And then he says, but pray this way. In verse 9, he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. It's interesting because when you look at giving, he points out three ways, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And if you want to jump ahead to fasting, he points out three ways, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. <laughs> but when it comes to prayer, he not only gives more verses to it and more dialogue with it, but he says, don't do this, don't do this, do this. He gives a positive instruction when it comes to prayer. The other ones he doesn't. And so he wants us to see the priority of prayer. Now, to do that, you kind of have to get a little background on what Jesus is talking about, what his culture is dealing with. And a lot of times it's good to get a little historical uh, perspective, you might say, on what we're looking at when we look at this model prayer. Now, God wants us to come to Him in prayer. We know that He wants us to pray. And uh, the Jewish perspective, from their perspective, they really had in their mind that they have a right to come to God. This was a major part of their life experience. They didn't have to pray about praying. They knew for sure that they were to pray. They continually desired to come to God. 
Because that was just part of their, their life. They were in a theocracy where God's, God was the head of their government and, and everything. And, and they didn't come like the pagans do in fear and trembling, the Word of God says. They didn't come to God in a panic. They came to God because they really believed that God wanted them there. Matter of fact, one rabbi said this, The Holy One yearns for the prayers of the righteous. Better than that, the Bible says in Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. In Psalm 91, 15, it says, When He calls to me, I will answer Him, says the Lord. In other words, the Word of God reveals that God wants us to pray to Him. We have a right to go to Him in prayer. He desires to hear our hearts cry. And no Jew would ever question the priority of prayer in the religious practice. The rabbis believed that prayer was not just communication, but they also believed that it was a weapon (laughs) to be used. It was a way of unleashing God's power, sometimes on their enemies. In Psalm 65, too, it says this, O thou that hearest prayer. And then it goes on to say, Unto thee shall all flesh come. See, the idea there is that the Jew said, O thou that hearest prayer. They believed that God heard their prayer and they could use it as a way to, to kind of unleash the power of God on whoever. They weren't like the people of, of, of who worship Baal. Remember with Elijah, they kept on saying the same thing over and over and over again, louder and louder, trying to, you know, and, you know, is your God on vacation? What's going on? You know, and, you know, it just didn't work for them. We don't have to do that. God's not on vacation. We don't have to, you know, rip our clothes and cut our bodies as they did, the pagans did, to get God's attention. He already is attentive to us. He wants us to know that He hears our prayers. Those of the righteous, the Word of God says. Also, the Jewish teachers wanted even to go a kind of a step further. They knew that that it was their right to pray. They, They could use it as a weapon to unleash God's power. They knew that prayer was heard. But they also believed that it was to be constant. It was part of their religious practice. They were trying to teach people to avoid praying only when you get desperate, as many of us do. Um, A lot of people view prayer as kind of a parachute. You're glad it's there and you hope you never have to use it. You know, that's so important that God wants us to pray all the time. They wanted people in their culture to pray all the time. The Talmud says this, Honor the physician before you have need of him. (laughs) That's a good principle, isn't it? You're going to the doctor, send him some flowers first. Send him a box of candy first. Kind of warm him up to your visit a little bit. Don't just go in there cold turkey. See, I mean, not that we have to manipulate God. But that principle is very true. Are we just crying out to God when we need as a desperate act when we need His help with something? Or are we constantly praying? It also says this, the Holy One says, just as it is as it is my office to offer the rain to, 
and the, the dew to fall and to make plants to grow and sustain man. Thou art bound to pray before me and to praise me in accordance with my works. You shall not say, I am in prosperity before, wherefore shall I pray? But when misfortune befalls me, then I will come and supplicate. No, before misfortune comes, anticipate and pray. We're to pray constantly. So they, they didn't think that prayer was some kind of emergency appeal to God. They really believed that it was something that we should be doing all the time. Um, and they also believed that there were certain elements to the model prayer. There were certain things that they believed prayer had to have if it was going to be biblical, true, God-honoring prayer. The first thing they thought was that it should incorporate some kind of love and praise. Um, the psalmist says in 34.2, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall what? Be continually in my mouth. Unceasingly will I offer praise. Psalm 51.17 says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. So they believed that part of the prayer life was not just asking God for things, but it was actually offering Him love and praise. They also felt that prayer should incorporate gratitude and thanksgiving. You think of the, the prayer Jonah offered up. I will offer sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. And even Paul prayed with thanksgiving in his heart. So it's to incorporate that kind of a thanksgiving, gratitude, grateful heart. Thirdly, they thought that Prayer should have a sense of God's holiness, a sense of reverence before God. In other words, they didn't just run into God's presence and say, oh, by the way, you know, it, it was something to be taken seriously. And I think a lot of times we take our relationship and we take our prayer life very flippantly. And we treat God as if he were almost a man. Hey, dude, you know, I need some help up there. You're up there. I've got to talk to the man upstairs. Use, use terms like that. They really bring God down to man's level. And God's saying that shouldn't be. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a glimpse of a proper high view of God. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died... Look at what he says. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. And two he covered his face, two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see the exaltation? Do you see the reverence that are coming into his presence? And... The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. See, he didn't march into God's presence saying, Hey, dude, what's up? He went in there, and he felt utterly desperate, utterly humiliated, utterly unclean. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people with a, of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
Then I said, here I am, send me. And it goes on. That's a very high view of God. It's not just prancing into God's presence saying, hey, by the way, I have a couple needs here. He wanted us to understand that we serve a God who is in the heavens. And sometimes the way we do church, sometimes the way we do our prayer meetings, sometimes the way we do our own personal worship, we just think God's the big man upstairs and, you know, that's how the, how the thing works. And God's saying, hey, wait a minute. You need a little bit of reverence when you come into my, my presence. They not only felt that, but they also felt that a praying heart should have a deep desire to obey God, to be obedient to God. They didn't say that you could just go to prayer if your heart wasn't right. If you were being disobedient, oh yeah, just pray anyway. God, don't worry, your sins are all forgiven. No, they really believed your heart had to be right. Psalm 119 affirms that over and over and over. It says things like, My tongue will sing of thy word, for thy commandments are right. And it goes on and on and on. Our, our hearts have to be right. We have to be obedient before God before we anticipate our prayers will be entertained by Him. Also, fifthly there, and part of this ties into that, they really incorporated a sense of confession of sin. When you go to prayer, are you just kind of going in there forgetting that maybe you have some some sins that need uh, you need to get things straightened out with God first? Psalm 26, verse 6 says this, I will wash my hands in innocence and then go about thine altar, O Lord. See, there's some preparatory, preparatory work that has to be done before you just kind of march into God's presence. I'm not coming into your presence until I've cleaned up what I can in my own life. Now, this is talking about believers. All right? It's talking about Christians. It's, you know, when we come to the Lord, we come to God with, with everything that we have, and we lay it on His altar at the cross, and we say, God, forgive me for all these sins. And He says, Done. You're forgiven. In that sense, we don't have to get cleaned up to get saved. But once we're a Christian, the process of sanctification, the process of God setting us apart, making us holy like His Son, goes on and on and on. And we're an imperfect people. So we sin every day. And the Bible clearly teaches that when we sin, what are we to do? To come to Him in confession. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then not only that, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can go into God in an unworthy manner if we have unconfessed sin in our lives. In James 5.16, it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a what? Righteous man avails much. So are we right in our standing with God as a believer? Yes, we are. You're not going to get any more right in your standing, in your position before God. How about the practicality? How about the living out the Christian walk every day? How are we doing in that area? That's what God, He wants us to come to Him with a pure heart. Also, they believe that prayer should be unselfish. Um, and we don't get this, you know, but in the Jewish culture, they really had a sense of community. 
They had a sense that they're all part of this together. They were all under the same theocracy, which was ruled by God, and the, 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 the national kind of a sense of pride was there. And they lived in this kind of a community where everybody kind of cared for each other. So we don't do that today. Everybody's kind of their own independent person. We go our own way. We walk our own way. We do our own thing. Back then, you wouldn't isolate out an individual. They believed in community. And their prayers were encompassed always in the whole. They were not isolating out one or two people. Um, it's interesting. This, this one, this one uh, commentary says that the rabbis had a very interesting prayer. Here's what it said. Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. What do you mean? What do you do when you go on vacation? I pray. I pray for good weather. pray for a safe ride. Pray. Well, they, they would never do that. Because while you're praying for good weather, there may be some poor farmer praying for rain. See, they had a sense of community. They had a sense of, of, of kind of a, a corporate religion. And we've gotten away from that. See, we focused on prayer and it comes down to what we want, what we need. And that's how we pray, most of us, most of the time. God, it's about me. And the rabbis would say, don't, don't hear that prayer. Don't hear the, the prayer of the traveler. Because you could be robbing the farmer of the much-needed rain he needs to feed us just to give this guy a nice vacation. See, we go to prayer and it's always I, I, me, me, my, my. And we isolate these prayers and then we say, yeah, I had a good prayer time this morning. Got all my needs out. <laughs> Got them all checked off in my journal. All the things that I need, I took to the Lord. And see, God wants us to come to Him in prayer. He wants us to come to Him in prayer with our needs. But He also wants us to come in prayer with a sense that, you know what, God, You are in heaven and You do have a master plan concerning Your kingdom and everything that fits together here. And sometimes my desires, my wants, may not fit exactly where I want them. So we don't always have that perspective when it comes to prayer. In the Old Testament, the Jews would pray, you do whatever advances your cause among your people, not what I want personally. See, we've developed this self-centered perspective of prayer, and it's really unbiblical. We've isolated ourselves kind of out. We don't communicate with each other. We don't bear each other's burdens. We don't share the way we should. And consequently, our prayers and our prayer life run down this one single track. And God's saying, that's, that's not the way I designed this church to operate. You notice, if you doubt that, if you just look through those verses in, in the... Uh, disciples prayer there you're going to see that there's no singular personal pronouns in that prayer not one it's our father our daily bread our debts our debtors 
That's the true prayer that encompasses the community of faith. It never isolates one individual out to have their needs met, no matter how it affects everybody else. So they really believed that prayer was to be unselfish. They also believed that it was to be persistent, that we had to persevere in prayer. You know, the Apostle Paul prayed three times... (laughs) You remember when, uh, uh, with the, the sin of the golden calf in and, and Deuteronomy and Moses, bless his heart, after the, the people just totally kind of messed up and God was ready to, you know, snuff them out, he went to God and he prayed. It says he prayed for his people's sins, the sins of Israel, for 40 days in a row. Now that's Perseverance. That's what God wants us to do. We don't just back off and say, oh, well, God's sovereign, that's why even pray. No, he says, you know what? I don't have a problem with you coming to me with, with needs and that are legitimate and fit within my will. But you know what? Sometimes you're going to have to be persistent about it. You're going to have to persevere. And then lastly, they thought that the prayers were to be humble, <clears throat> that they had to possess some form of humility. See, a Jew who was coming into prayer to submit himself to the will of God, that's, what, that's the whole purpose of them coming. It wasn't coming to name it and claim it. It wasn't coming to, God, I demand this, I demand that. No, in their mind, when they came to prayer, they were saying, okay, God, I'm submitting myself to your will, whatever that may be. Greatest illustration of that is when Jesus was in the garden. You remember in the very prayer of the Lord Himself in the garden, when He He basically was very uncomfortable and didn't want to necessarily humanly do what was ahead of Him to go to the cross and all that. He says, "Nevertheless, not my what will, but Thy be done." That's the heart of the truest prayer. God, here's my desire, but you know what? It's up to you, and I I recognize that. And if if that's not in your thing, then then don't allow that to happen. I want your desire, God, not mine. It's asking Him to do His will and to give us grace to enjoy it. So all those elements, those eight things there, were part of the very basic elements of Judaism when it came to prayer. And it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, fall far from what we should be focused on today. And so when we look at the, the, the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer here, you know, what happened to them was their prayers became very hypocritical. See, they lost all eight of these things over time, and they began to, as religious leaders, saying, oh, you know what, we'll just make our prayers this way. Let's just go out on the street and wear our fancy robes and speak with big words so everybody can... Look at us and go, oh, look at that person praying. You know, I couldn't help but notice the other day I was watching on the news, you know, all the pomp and circumstances with the Pope coming. And I looked at all the garments they're wearing and all the everything. You know, it's just amazing. And people are impressed by that. And I'm here to tell you, God's not impressed by that. 
God's not impressed by somebody wearing a suit or, God, or God's not wear, you know, wearing a robe or wearing... What, he doesn't care about that stuff. He cares about your heart. He cares if you've you found the true way of salvation. If you come to Christ and only Christ for your salvation, or are you trusting in something else? See, they were trusting in what man said about their prayers. They were trusting in vain repetitions, it said. They were trusting in telling God what He needed to know. And so their, their prayers became very hypocritical. They became phony. They made up prayers. So when you had a sick dog, they'd just get out the prayer. Oh, dog, sick dog prayer, here it is. Pray this. That's what it came down to. And so many times, I believe, at least in my own prayer life sometimes, you fall into that trap. Okay, let's uh, bless, bless the meal. Okay, who's going to pray? I'll pray. More times than not, I find myself praying. I'm thinking, you know, I just prayed that at lunch. Almost the exact same words. And I catch myself going, how is that different from when I was growing up in a Catholic church and we'd sit down at the table... Bless the Lord for these, I guess, which you're about to receive from thy bounty through Christ's Lord. Amen. Eat. I say that, I can say that per backwards. I said it so many times. Had no meaning. Sometimes, you know, when we come to a prayer time, when we come to a dinner time, and I'm speaking to myself as well, let's freshen it up a little bit. You know, it doesn't mean you've got to pray a 20-minute long prayer for the food. Okay, that's not going to help anybody, including your stomach. But you know what? There's, there's fresh ways that you can say things. I mean, think if every time you talk to somebody, they said the same thing to you. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't you get a little irritated after a while? Wouldn't you get a little bored? And yet, that's what we do sometimes with God. And God says, hey, you know what? Let's, let's make this a real deal here. I am a, a real living God. I want to have communion with you. I want, to pr- I want to communicate to you through prayer. I want you to communicate to me through prayer. Let's do it in a real way. Like I really exist. Now, unfortunate, a lot of people take this prayer and basically they recite it. They put it at the end of a service or something and everybody will pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I don't think this prayer is a prayer that Jesus meant to be recited. Matter of fact, I know it wasn't. Any more than any other portion of Scripture. This isn't a prayer that he even envisioned as people getting together and, okay, shall we pray? Our Father and everybody. That's not what it was for. It was a model prayer. That's why it's so succinct. That's why it's so exact. Only God could come up with this prayer. When you begin to study this prayer, it goes off in so many different directions, there's no way that you can come up even with a clean outline of this prayer. It's just amazing. That's why he says in verse 9, in this manner, recite this prayer. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says, hey... You might think about this. This is a model for your future praying. It was never meant to be recited. 
the reason is, is because it's recorded twice in Scripture, here in Matthew 6 and also, as I mentioned, in Luke 11. And it differs in both places. They're different prayers. Basic same models the same, but they're different words. In one, he says, Father, forgive us our debts. In the other, he says, forgive us our trespasses. In other words, if it was to be a rote prayer, if it was to be a routine prayer, if it was something to be copied and recited exactly, don't you think he would have wrote it down exactly the same both times? And said, pray this. In Luke 11, they said, the disciples came to Jesus because they noticed prayer was kind of a, a big thing in his life. And the disciples came to Christ and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Remember that? They didn't say, Lord, could you teach us a prayer? They said, teach us to pray. See, it's one thing to have a prayer book and open it and read a prayer. It's something else to learn how to pray. The Lord wasn't giving them a prayer. He was teaching them to pray. It would be a little silly if he was actually giving them a prayer that they were supposed to recite because he just got done saying in verse 11 or verse 7 of chapter 6, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. And by the way, I want you to repeat this prayer. (laughs) I don't think he would do that. Silly. And also there's no other occasion in the entire New Testament, the Gospels or the Acts of the Epistles, where this prayer is ever repeated by anybody. So there's no model for repeating this prayer. It's basically a skeleton that we have to put the meats and bones of our prayers onto. It's an outline. And only God could come up with such an outline because it's the Lord's pattern for prayer. And you can look at it in a lot of different ways, as I was saying. You can look at it in a way that it unfolds the relationship that we have with God. For example, it says, Our Father, which means we have a father-child relationship with God. It says, Hallowed be thy name. We have a deity-worshiper relationship with God. Going on, it says, Thy kingdom come. We have a sovereign-subject relationship with God. Thy will be done. Master-servant relationship with God. Give us our daily bread. We have a benefactor-beneficiary relationship with God. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts. We have a savior-sinner relationship with God. Lead us not into temptation. We have a guide and a pilgrim relationship with God. You could, you could look at the whole prayer that way. How it affects our relationship with God. 